AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. O-Z-Y. Ozzy. Ozzy Media Productions. A militant minority of women's liberationists was on the streets across the country. In the end, I kind of came to understand that, that in many ways women are all bunnies. I enjoy women. I enjoy being women with women very much. Constantly surrounded by gorgeous girls and beautiful belongings, Hefner's world may seem enviable to some. I'm a very lucky fella. With whatever problems or conflicts I've had in my life, I've managed to pursue and fulfill most all of my dreams. I personally would not want to go down in history as Hugh Hefner. On the night of March 26, 1970, two major social movements in America collided on live television. It wasn't on the news. It was on a late-night talk show. The Dick Cavett Show! It's 1970. Almost everyone on stage wears bell-bottom trousers and some shade of brown or orange. The set is adorned with red-upholstered chairs and walls. Dick Cavett, the sandy-haired host with bushy sideburns, announces his final two guests of the evening. There are a lot of women in this country who feel that they're being pushed around, and they've become very vocal. They call themselves the Women's Liberation Movement, and we have two representatives in that movement here tonight. Cavett invites Susan Brownmiller and Sally Kempton out on stage. The two prominent feminists sit down just a few feet from the show's previous guest, another man with sideburns, one who is smoking his trademark pipe and grinning like a Cheshire cat. That man is Hugh Hefner, or Hef, as Cavett and most of America calls him. The founder of Playboy magazine is the walking, talking embodiment of the sexual revolution, or at least the red-blooded male side of it. Cavett sets things off when he asks Brown Miller a pointed question. 
What do you think men are doing wrong? They oppress us as women. They won't let us be. And Hugh Hefner is my enemy. Oh, is Hef your enemy? Uh, we really set you up tonight. <laughs> I'm more in sympathy than perhaps, uh, you know, the girls realize with... Women. Women. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm 35. ...than the ladies realize. I oh. use girls referring to women of all ages. You should stop. Suddenly, the man responsible for dressing young women up as Playboy bunnies in his clubs is getting dressed down on national television by a woman. It's the kind of confrontation that happens all the time on talk shows today. But Cabot's audience doesn't know what to make of it. And Brown Miller is just getting warmed up. Don't know what to do. You make them look like animals, yes. Women aren't bunnies, they're not rabbits, they're human beings. All right. It's Hefner now who resembles an animal, one frozen in the headlights of an oncoming train. And then the knockout blow. The day that you are willing to come out here with a cotton tail attached to your rear end. Hefner is visibly flustered by the assault and sits back in his chair. He pulls out a match and lights his pipe. The audience revels in the drama and his discomfort. And there were some feminists in the audience who sort of rushed the stage uh, during the, the broadcast, and Dick Cavett had to sort of, you know, restore order. This is Hefner biographer Stephen Watts. People were brought in to calm everybody down, and it was quite the big deal. Cavett would later apologize for the charged encounter to Hefner. This turned into a roast Hefner evening. I'm sorry about that. Today on The Thread, Hugh Hefner, playboy, icon, enemy. This is The Thread, a podcast from Aussie Media where we explore the interconnecting lives and events of history. I'm Sean Braswell. This season, we pull the thread on the feminist leader Gloria Steinem. One of the turning points in Steinem's career, as we heard in episode one, was her assignment as a young reporter to go undercover as a Playboy bunny. The experience opened her eyes to the realization that all women could be considered Playboy bunnies. The man behind the Playboy Club and its bunnies was another legendary magazine founder and a very different sort of American icon, Hugh Hefner. In this episode, we trace Steinem's story back to the exclusive universe that Hefner created, to its early days, and to the Hollywood legend who inadvertently helped Hefner launch Playboy in the first place. Hugh Hefner's death last year marked the end of an era. Hugh Hefner, the publisher of Playboy, has died at the age of 91. And Hugh Hefner was a Playboy till the very end, throwing lavish parties well into his 80s. Hefner's extravagant lifestyle and outspoken views on sex were controversial while he was alive, and no less so after his death. Hefner considered himself to be a rebel, an activist, and a progressive. What Hefner was, was a man on a mission to alter society's conservative views on sex, politics, and social equality. Many had a far different conception of Hefner by the end of his life. One New York Times columnist wrote after his death that the Playboy founder was a lecherous, low-brow Peter Pan. Ice cream for breakfast, pajamas all day, while bodyguards shooed male celebrities away from his paid harem. Or, as Gloria Steinem puts it, If I had made him up and put him in a novel, I would be hung from the highest tree because he was such a parody of himself. He was pathetic. Hugh Hefner changed the world, but the world also changed on Hugh Hefner. Hefner saw himself at the vanguard of the sexual revolution occurring in the mid-20th century, not only as a participant, but also a catalyst. 
Stephen Watts again. Hefner was convinced, uh, I think probably with some justification, that he had played a very large role in uh, the sexual revolution and in sort of loosening the sexual mores and values of American society. And he grew more bitter as the years went by when others did not recognize his handiwork. This is Russell Miller, a journalist and author of Bunny, the real story of Playboy. He did have a, a strong sense of resentment that he wasn't being sufficiently uh, lauded for what he'd done. That, um, he virtually said that it was Playboy that liberated America. But which part of America? Playboy was no different from any other pop culture fixture of the 1950s and 60s. It reinforced the primacy of men in American society. Hefner was selling something that advertisers were willing to support. Gloria Steinem again. He would never publish a, an article or a story, even a fictional uh, story, in which women won, quote-unquote. Hefner said, We think it's a man's world, or should be. And yet he was surprised when his relationship with America's growing women's movement became contentious. And I think he was genuinely stunned in the late 60s and early 70s when modern feminists begin to paint him as being an oppressor, an oppressor of women. Uh, and Hefner, frankly, didn't quite know what to make of this. He had always sort of viewed himself as liberating uh, women as well as men for sexual experience. Hefner, to his dismay, found himself the whipping boy of the women's movement, and not just on the Dick Cavett show. Well, I think he served uh, Hefner as a kind of foil for the feminist revolution in that I think because of the magazine and the images and his personal prominence, uh, he became someone who was a very convenient and easy target uh, as a kind of boogeyman. Hefner fought back. Not long after the encounter on the Dick Cavett show, Hefner responded by taking the war to the pages of Playboy. He assigned an article to a, a male reporter to write about the women's movement. And uh, when it came in and it was at all accurate, he wrote a memo, which then one of the women there leaked out. Hefner spelled out in the memo the kind of story he was looking for. These chicks are our natural enemy. What I want is a devastating piece that takes the militant feminists apart. Gloria Steinem, who first exposed the Playboy Clubs as an undercover reporter, went after Hefner again. She released the leak memo to the media. She hoped it would prompt a backlash and show Hefner's true colors. The memo fell on deaf ears, even laughter. Hefner and his feminist critics were not in fact total enemies. They had more in common than either cared to admit. They were on the same side when it came to big issues like free speech, civil rights, and reproductive freedom. Playboy was the first major U.S. magazine to advocate for the right to legal abortions on demand. It published letters from women describing the emotional and physical trauma they had experienced from seeking illegal abortions. But Hefner remained opposed to the women he called militant feminists for a long time. So feminism, I think, was something that was a sore point with Hefner. Uh, I think in the 70s and 80s and 90s, as he got older, uh, I think he reconciled himself uh, to this a lot more. And I think by the end of his life, uh, he, he considered himself to be a feminist. Most today would not think of Hefner as a feminist. His record is a bit complicated, says his biographer, Stephen Watts. 
Well, on balance, I think Hugh Hefner's uh, impact on on women in modern uh, America, it's something of a mixed record. On the one hand, Hefner supported feminism in terms of equality before the law, says Watts. On the other hand, he made no effort to conceal how he made women into sex objects. But actually, I talked to Hefner about this because he said, of course, women are sexual objects for men in the same way that men are sexual objects for women. He said the problem is, is if you only objectify women, if you only see them as sex objects, and uh, that's the rub. And I think that's the rub for Playboy, too. How did Hefner wind up the enemy of so many women? Up next, we go back to the early days of Playboy, when Hefner transformed his controversial magazine into a global empire and transformed himself in the process. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. If you're 21 years old and use nicotine or tobacco, I'm here to tell you about Black Buffalo and how it's redefining tradition for millions of adult consumers. So if you're over 21, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. Warning. This product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults aged 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Playboy magazine was an instant success when it launched in 1953. The very first issue of the magazine was was very popular, and it sold out pretty quickly. From what I gather, it was one of the most successful launches of a magazine uh, in modern American history. The 1950s were a time of abundance in America, and the currents of the sexual revolution were just beginning to stir. I think Hefner and, and his notion of Playboy really fell into the culture at, at precisely the time when the culture was sort of ready to receive it. So right guy, right idea, right time. The majority of the magazine's readers were men between the ages of 20 and 34. And the primary attraction? The nude centerfold known as the Playmate of the Month. This is Russell Miller again. 
the playmate in, in um, Playboy was always the wholesome girl next door, the kind of girl that you could take out and not worry about, you wouldn't mind introducing to your mum. The humorist Mort Saul once quipped that an entire generation of American men grew up thinking that women came with a staple in their midsection. Others were not as amused. Television host Mike Wallace interviewed Hefner in 1956 and suggested that he was selling, quote, a high-class dirty book. Hefner responded, There's nothing dirty in sex unless we make it dirty. Within a few years of Playboy's launch, Hugh Hefner was a different man. Well, Playboy magazine changed Hefner's life dramatically uh, when uh, it became very, very successful, uh, and he just sort of blasted off into the cultural stratosphere. Hefner threw himself into his work. He really did begin to live at the office. Uh, He had a separate bedroom uh, suite sort of built off his office, and he stayed there. He rarely went home. Hefner used his office bedroom for other activities as well. He began to spend a lot of time around rather fetching young women. Uh, He began to have uh, liaisons and affairs with uh, a number of them. And his marriage uh, slowly began to crumble. And so Hugh Hefner decided to reinvent himself. He made a very conscious decision that he would become Mr. Playboy. Uh, He would become the guy that was being idealized in Playboy magazine. Hefner started to smoke a pipe. He dressed better. He surrounded himself with beautiful women, and he made no effort to hide it. I enjoy women. I enjoy being women with women very much. Most of the girls that I date are, are several years younger than I am, 18 to 24, 25 probably. Uh, a good many of them, of course, are girls that in one way or another work for the magazine. Soon there was no real divide between Hefner's work and play. Hefner was more than a brand ambassador for Playboy. He was the brand itself. Constantly surrounded by gorgeous girls and beautiful belongings, Hefner's world may seem enviable to some. At 44, he's unquestionably King Rabbit, and certainly he takes every opportunity to enjoy his dough. He moved into a new home. He called it the Playboy Mansion. It became the most famous party house on the planet. First in Chicago, and later in Beverly Hills. What happened at Playboy Mansion in a kind of typical day was that uh, it was the site for Hefner's uh, sort of equally intense bouts of work and play. The $100 million home became an exclusive playground, one where fantasies became reality among celebrities and scantily clad women. Or so it seemed to many who did not journey inside the mansion's walls. It was quite... Crowded. There were lots of men there, um, um, quite a lot of, of girls. Russell Miller again. He witnessed firsthand the typical evenings at the Playboy Mansion. They weren't sort of big celebrities. They were uh, B-team actors and second-class footballers and hairdressers. And they'd just be hanging around, all a bit bored, drinking half wine and beer and stuffing in sandwiches. Until about 11 o'clock, when a secretary suddenly emerged from his room on the top floor and came running down the stairs and said, quick, quick, Hef's going to come down. Make like there's a party. Stephen Watts says it was like something out of the pages of The Great Gatsby. Hefter was sort of like Jay Gatsby. 
uh, in that he always had one foot in and one foot out, partly a participant, partly an observer. Hefner was also a creature of habit. He was a very regimented man. He was uh, addicted to routine. The movie nights, for example, were set on a set schedule of nights, uh, the same kinds of movies on the same days of the week with the same groups of people. He ate the same meals the same day of the week and uh, the same recipes and everything. Hefner's routine was often at odds with the Playboy image. The reality of, of life in the um, Los Angeles mansion was very, very different from that that the uh, magazine constantly portrayed. And I have to tell you that Hefner played Monopoly three times a week with the same four friends. That's right. Monopoly games, fried chicken, old movies, and old men. It was like Hooters had opened a retirement home. But for Hefner, it was perfect. He didn't like to leave the mansion. He was sort of charming and... And, um, and, and funny and pleasant, you know, and a very amiable in, individual, except that I thought I had a strong feeling he was just cut off from, from reality. And I said to him once, I said, Hef, why don't you ever go out? And, and he, he, he seemed quite shocked. He said, why, should, why on earth would I want to go out? What's the point? I get everything I need from here. And part of what Hefner needed and got was a steady supply of young women. Hundreds lived at the Playboy Mansion over the years, a constantly replenishing harem. By and large, uh, the women recognized that they were um, second-class citizens. A lot of the girls um, quickly became disillusioned. Um, they they re- recognized that they were just there as decoration, as, as sexual playthings, and would, um, would, would leave and not come back. Hugh Hefner managed to create a mystique around his own playboy image, whatever the reality of mansion life may have been. And it wasn't long until Hefner and Playboy had another idea. Take the fantasies from the pages of the magazine to playboy clubs, with male members only. And what they created was a place for uh, readers of the magazine to come to these places and experience in real life the playboy lifestyle with good food and good liquor and sophisticated jazz music, uh, all the kinds of things they were talking about in the magazine, and, of course, very uh, attractive young women. A job as a Playboy bunny was also very attractive to many young women. Most bunnies were college students or aspiring actresses or models. They were drawn to the flexible schedule and a chance to earn more than their fathers. The Playboy clubs would become a worldwide phenomenon during the 1960s. It seemed that Playboy could do no wrong. You know, Hefner began to talk about uh, a whole Playboy world where um, you would stay, you would, your entertainment would be provided by a Playboy club, your reading would be provided by Playboy magazines, you would stay in a Playboy hotel, use Playboy money. I mean, just, it, he, he got carried away with, um, with the notion that, that Playboy could take over the world. Up next, we find out what really launched Playboy. Hefner's fantasy-powered rocket ship might have crashed and burned on the launch pad without the star power of the playmate who Hefner admired above all others. Hugh Hefner grew up in Chicago during the Great Depression. Here is biographer Stephen Watts again. His parents, uh, Glenn Hefner and Grace Hefner, were uh, transplanted Nebraskans uh, from a very traditional background. 
And Hefner grew up, he had a very happy childhood, but one that uh, he felt was uh, a bit restrictive uh, on the religious and moral front. They were sort of middle-class folk, um, very God-fearing, very respectable. Russell Miller again. They didn't drink, they didn't smoke, um, they, uh, there was no high living. Um, Hefner himself um, admitted at the age of 18 that he was still a virgin. Hefner was a gangly teenager. Five foot ten, 115 pounds. He was shy and awkward around girls. He was uh, something of a loner, and uh, he spent a lot of time uh, in his bedroom. He was uh, a, a cartoonist, a fledgling cartoonist, even as a young boy, and uh, he had a, a very vivid imagination, I guess I would say. Hefner loved movies and pop culture, and he immersed himself in fantasy worlds of his own creation. In the eighth grade, he discovered Esquire magazine, and he hung its modest pinup girls on his bedroom walls. The movies and the magazines inspired the young Hefner to reinvent himself for the first time. By high school, he had transformed himself into the life of the party. And then in high school, he was enormously popular. Uh, he always looked back on his life uh, in high school as being a kind of golden era. Hefner entered the Army in World War II after high school. Then he went to the University of Illinois on the GI Bill, where he studied journalism and writing. After college, he moved to the suburbs and married his college sweetheart, Millie. But, like many college grads, Hefner struggled to bridge the gap between his aspirations and his employment options. He gave up on his dream of being a cartoonist and took a series of copywriting jobs or advertising agencies. Hefner soon grew unhappy at work, unhappy with Millie, now pregnant, and daunted by the prospect of becoming a parent. He longed for um, a, a better life and a more sophisticated, more glamorous life. He used to walk um, along sort of fancy streets in Chicago and look up at the windows of apartments of people who had hi-fis and, um, and fancy cars and thought, you know, he'd look in the windows and think, well, that's what I want to be one day. That's what I want to have one day. Hefner's discontent came to a head after he attended a high school reunion in 1952 and was reminded of that golden era again. And he came home, actually, from this gathering sort of deeply depressed, and he told the story later in life that he was in downtown Chicago and he was standing on one of the bridges, kind of looking out over the water, uh, just wondering about his life. And as he was standing on the bridge, looking out over the water, thinking about his high school days, he decided he had to do something to change his life. And what he did was to go home, and over the next several days, he uh, began to put into action a plan that had been kind of percolating in the back of his mind, and that was to create a magazine for young men like himself. And that magazine, of course, turned out to be Playboy. Hefner bristled at the restricted morality of his Midwestern upbringing, not to mention the growing conformity of 1950s suburbia. And he was convinced that there were a lot of young guys out there just like him. This post-war period was one where the economy was booming and young men like him were getting decent jobs with, you know, pretty decent salaries. And I think having been in the war, they were looking for broader experience, deeper, uh, more authentic kind of experience. And a lot of them were feeling pressure to be family men and to have a lot of kids and to move to the suburbs and that kind of thing. Hefner wanted to create a magazine that would serve as a pathway to a richer kind of experience for these men. 
an entertainment magazine for the upwardly mobile urban male, something breezy and sophisticated that included original writing and tips on fashion and style, and, of course, the all-important centerfold. Hefner worked hard to gather up around $8,000 to launch Playboy. He called on all his friends and indeed his family to put in um, a small amount of money. And he, he raised enough money to make the first uh, edition feasible. That first issue, which Hefner had assembled on his kitchen table, hit newsstands in December 1953. Well, Hefner was extremely nervous about the first issue of Playboy because he'd borrowed money from his family. He actually sold some of his furniture and his car to raise money. He, he just gambled everything on it. It was an all-or-nothing venture for Hefner, and everything hinged on that first issue. He wasn't sure uh, if uh, people would buy it. Uh, He was so unsure that he didn't put actually a date on the first issue, nor his name. Actually, when the magazine first came out from the distributor, he went down into Chicago and sort of walked from newsstand to newsstand and hid behind a tree or behind a car to to watch to see if uh, guys who came by the newsstand were buying his magazine. And they did in the thousands. Playboy quickly sold out, thanks in large part to one unforgettable centerfold. Hugh Hefner was never shy about his admiration for the screen legend Marilyn Monroe. Do you think you would have dated her? I would have loved to have. This is 86-year-old Hugh Hefner talking about Monroe in a 2013 interview. You know I'm a sucker for blondes, (laughs) and she is the ultimate blonde. Monroe also had an oversized impact on Hefner's life. She was the, the launching key to the beginning of Playboy. Hefner knew that he needed to make the first issue of Playboy extraordinary. And that meant he needed the perfect centerfold, the ideal woman to anchor his new magazine. He combed through nude photographs of models and pinup girls from across the nation. And then he found what he was looking for. That year, Marilyn Monroe was Hollywood's biggest news star. The 27-year-old blonde bombshell had wowed audiences in films like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire. The year before, America was shocked to learn that Monroe posed nude as a young, struggling model. But many Americans still had not seen the actual evidence. And so it happened that Hugh Hefner, in desperate need of the perfect centerfold for his new men's magazine, learned that a local Chicago calendar company owned the rights to Monroe's nude images. Hefner persuaded the owner to sell him one of the nude photos, which featured Monroe against a red velvet backdrop. And so he was able to buy the, um, buy that, the rights to that picture for $500, um, which uh, was a huge amount of money at that time and pretty much cleaned him out. But Hefner was convinced that he had in his possession the most valuable photograph in the world. When Playboy hit newsstands, a clothed Marilyn Monroe appeared on its front cover. Inside was the red velvet image. Monroe, Hefner wrote in that first issue, is natural sex personified. She became the magazine's first centerfold, the first Playboy playmate. He launches the first issue of Playboy with uh, Marilyn Monroe as the first playmate, and it's really the start of everything that happens thereafter. The um, first edition was extraordinarily successful. The, um, the, the centerfold picture of Marilyn Monroe was a sensation. Monroe put Playboy and Hefner on the map. 
And he launched his empire on uh, these nude photos of Marilyn, having never gotten her permission, having never met her, um, and he didn't offer her a dime. This is Monroe biographer Sarah Churchwell. We will hear more from her and about Monroe's response to the nude photographs in the next episode. And Hugh Hefner literally became a millionaire um, thanks to these photographs. And with them, Hugh Hefner began his remarkable run as the nation's leading playboy converting his own dream into a collective fantasy for millions of American men. Ten years later, a young reporter named Gloria Steinem went undercover in one of Hefner's Playboy clubs and entered into the crosshairs of that fantasy. What she learned there would change her life and, via her efforts, the lives of countless women. And what about Marilyn Monroe, the woman whose image helped launch Playboy in the first place? Monroe's path to fame and fortune was hard, even tragic, and very different from Hugh Hefner's. Hefner and Monroe were contemporaries, both born in 1926, but they never met. Today, they lie next to each other for eternity in a mausoleum in Los Angeles. This was Hefner's wish, not Monroe's. Even in death, Monroe was not safe from the men who exploited her, from the men she liked to call the wolves. In the end, we're all bunnies too. Pa, 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 The Thread is produced by Libby Coleman and me, Sean Braswell. Chris Hoff engineered our show. Special thanks to Cindy Carpian, Tracy Moran, and James Watkins. This episode features music by Accelerated Readers with a song called Bunny Song and The Magnetic Fields with a song called Let's Pretend We're Bunny Rabbits. To learn more about The Thread, visit aussie.com slash the thread, all one word, and make sure to subscribe to The Thread on Apple Podcasts. Check us out at aussie.com or on Twitter and Facebook. If you love surprising, engaging stories from history, look no further than the flashback section of aussie.com. That's ozy.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Tired of pickup truck bed chaos? Meet Decked, game-changing USA-made full bed-length drawers for tools and gear. Waterproof, dustproof, lockable, secure. Whether you're working, hunting, fishing, camping, or just getting out of town. And introducing Decked Deco cases. Tough, modular, problem-solving cases built for the truck, job site, campsite, or garage. Say goodbye to random bins and tie-downs. Order now at Decked.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Decked, your truck, your rules. Decked.com forward slash iHeart.